Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. morning. My name is Michelle, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to CWB's second quarter financial results conference call and webcast. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Thank you. Now I would like to turn the call over to Mr. Patrick Gallagher. You may begin your conference. Good morning and welcome to our second quarter 2021 financial results conference call. My name is Patrick Gallagher and I'm the vice president leading our strategy and investor relations team. I would like to remind listeners and webcast participants that statements about future events made on this call are forward-looking in nature and based on certain assumptions and analysis made by management. Actual results could differ materially from expectations due to various risks and uncertainties associated with CWB's business. Please refer to our forward-looking statement advisory on slide number two. The agenda for today's call is is on the third slide. Presenting to you today are Chris Fowler, our President and Chief Executive Officer, and Matt Rudd, our Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer. Following the presentations, we'll open the lines for the question and answer session. I'll now turn the call over to Chris, who will begin his discussion on slide four. Thank you, Patrick, and good morning. Our teams continue to deliver financial performance that surpassed our expectations this quarter. While we benefited from a lower provision for credit losses compared to the same quarter last year, a major driver of our strong financial performance was growth in net interest income. Pre-tax, pre-provision income increased 11% compared to the same quarter last year, and we significantly increased our full-year earnings per share expectations this quarter. Our focus to support our clients by investing in our capabilities and product offering is creating solid growth opportunities for CWB, especially as the near-term economic outlook improves. We're seeing signs of a strong economic recovery that could provide additional accretive opportunities within our risk appetite to surpass our baseline loan growth expectations. To provide capital flexibility to take advantage of these potential opportunities, we plan to establish an at-the-market common equity distribution program. This program will provide a flexible and efficient tool to grow our regulatory capital base, if needed, in parallel with strong levels of loan growth to drive incremental shareholder returns. We also continue to make strong progress on our strategic priorities, which is reflected in the growth and further diversification of our funding sources. This quarter, we increased lower-cost branch-raised deposits 2% sequentially, which supported continued net interest margin improvement and revenue growth. Our total loans were up 3% compared to last quarter, with robust growth across all provinces and the strongest activity in our commercial mortgage and general commercial portfolios. Within these two categories, we continued to support existing clients while also adding new full-service relationships with strong credit profiles. 
our strategic focus on geographic diversification resulted in continued general commercial growth, loan growth in Ontario, driven by effective collaboration between our Mississauga Banking Centre and our other lines of business that lend in Ontario. As the economy recovers, we will be well positioned to accelerate our growth and capture increased market share in the province, fueled by our planned opening of a second full-service banking centre in fiscal 2022. Throughout the quarter, we have gained significant insights as we continue to use our AIRB tools and processes across our business and have identified opportunities for enhancements that we expect will improve our efficiency and effectiveness as an ARB bank. We plan to implement these enhancements and expect to extend our previously communicated timeline for resubmission of our ARB application beyond the first half of 2022. But believe this approach will result in a more favorable long-term outcome for our teams and for our investors. We also continue to execute on the development of our digital client offering, which will provide end-to-end digital banking to complement our proactive relationship-based client experience. In the second half of 2021, we will commence a limited initial rollout of our virtual COO, a digital solution powered by explainable artificial intelligence. This innovative digital tool will provide small business owners with access to real-time information on their financial health and relevant insights to accelerate their business growth. Our enhanced and targeted digital capabilities will enable us to continue to grow and diversify our business across Canada by winning new clients both within and outside our branch footprint, while further broadening our access to stable, lower-cost funding. This quarter, we are recognized by Great Place to Work as one of the 50 best workplaces in Canada for the second consecutive year. We're proud to be recognized as a career destination for top talent while our teams continue to make significant progress on our ambitious strategic agenda during the exceptional circumstances of the past year. There's no question that our people are core to our success. And receiving this award is especially gratifying as it's based on confidential feedback from our teams. I'll now turn the call over to Matt, who will provide greater detail on our second quarter performance and improved outlook for 2021. Thanks, Chris, and good morning, everyone. Uh, So turning to slide five, uh, on a full-year basis, branch raise deposit growth of 18% reflects our continued focus on full-service relationships. Demand and notice deposits, which are our lowest cost source of funding, increased 34% compared to last year and now account for 42% of our total funding. We also continue to build greater funding diversity on the strength of our capital markets program, with two senior deposit notes totaling $750 million issued during the quarter at historically low credit spreads. Our efforts to grow and diversify our funding sources drove a reduction in the outstanding balance of broker deposits, which now represent 21% of our total funding compared to 26% last year. Looking at slide six, our total loans increased 7% in the past year, That was supported by robust growth across the country. Our 24% growth in commercial mortgages primarily reflects strong new lending volumes in British Columbia and Alberta with high-quality borrowers that remain within our risk appetite. We also drove 9% growth in our strategically targeted general commercial portfolio, including 15% growth in Ontario. Total Ontario loans grew 10% compared to last year and now represent 23% of our total loans. 7% growth in Alberta primarily reflects uh, general commercial loans and growth in commercial mortgages. 
On a sequential basis, we delivered very strong growth in commercial mortgages. Approximately two-thirds of that growth related to strong existing CWB clients, and we've had success in maintaining the lending relationship on completed real estate construction projects. Our general commercial growth this quarter was very well balanced across numerous industries with clients with very strong credit profiles. This loan category is a strategic growth area for us as it provides excellent opportunities to increase our full-service client relationships. As slide seven shows, we delivered very strong second quarter results. Our common shareholders' net income increased 40% and pre-tax pre-provision income increased 11% compared to last year. That was supported by strong loan growth and higher net interest margin despite the low interest rate environment. Adjusted earnings per share increased by 24 cents from the same quarter last year. We did have a 17 cent contribution from a lower total provision for credit losses, and that was primarily driven by a net recovery of $5 million in our estimated provision for credit losses on performing loans compared to a charge of $19 million last year. Higher net interest income compared to last year contributed 22 cents to EPS and reflected the benefit of a 13 basis point increase in net interest margin and 7% annual loan growth. Uh, that was partially offset by the impact of one fewer interest earning day this quarter. Excluding the wealth acquisition, higher non-interest expenses reduced EPS by 10 cents as we continued to invest in our strategic priorities and incurred the cost associated with operating our AIRB tools and processes. We also paid the first semi-annual coupon payment on our Series 1 LRCNs during this quarter, which reduced EPS by 5 cents. Lower gains on securities sold this year reduced EPS by 2 cents, as in the prior year, gains were higher as we rebalanced our security portfolio to reflect a significant shift in interest rates. Our sequential earnings performance is shown on slide 8 and reflects a 1% increase in total revenue despite three less interest earning days this quarter. Our common shareholders' net income decreased 9% and pre-tax pre-provision income decreased 3% compared to last quarter. Adjusted EPS was reduced by $0.09, cents, primarily due to a 5% increase in non-interest expenses, as expected, and the semi-annual LRCN coupon payment made during the quarter, both of which had a $0.05 cent EPS impact. As shown on slide 9, our net interest margin has continued to build since the third quarter last year. During the second quarter, our net interest margin increased by 6 basis points compared to the previous quarter. This reflects the positive impact of proactive deposit pricing changes that we were able to execute while also driving strong branch raise deposit growth, and we had a one-time two basis point benefit associated with balance sheet management activities corresponding to a shift in our funding mix. The NIM expansion this quarter, combined with 3% loan growth, more than offset the impact of three fewer interest earning days to generate 1% sequential growth in net interest income. Turning to slide 10, the second quarter provision for credit losses on total loans of 20 basis points was up two basis points from last quarter. Our performing loan provision for credit losses was a recovery of seven basis points compared to a six basis point recovery last quarter. Compared to the same quarter last year, the total provision for credit losses was 29 basis points lower, driven by a 34 basis point decrease in the performing loan provision for credit losses primarily due to improved macroeconomic forecasts associated with the ongoing economic recovery. Our allowance for credit losses on performing loans totaled $121 million, and as previously noted, that was a decrease of $5 million compared to the previous quarter. 
The forecast used in our estimation of the performing loan allowance this quarter was slightly more optimistic than the outlook we used last quarter. The credit performance of our borrowers through this quarter was stable, with overall levels of delinquency that remain well below where they were just prior to the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic. We continue to maintain an appropriate level of performing loan allowances for credit losses based on the current volatile economic conditions. Ongoing shifts in macroeconomic factors changes in the level of portfolio defaults or changes in the risk rating of our loans will continue to impact the performing loan allowance in future quarters. At 27 basis points, our provision for credit losses on impaired loans was three basis points higher than last quarter and five basis points higher than the same quarter last year. Gross impaired loans were 95 basis points of total loans, up from 93 basis points last quarter and last year. Our realized write-offs remain low which has been consistent with our historical experience even through periods of elevated levels of gross impaired loan formations. Our strong credit performance reflects our prudent underwriting, the secured nature of our lending portfolio, and our disciplined management of impaired loans through to resolution while limiting realized loan losses. Based on our current outlook for the Canadian economy, which is described further in our MDNA, we expect for the second half of fiscal 2021 a total provision for credit losses in basis points within a range between the high 20s and low 30s. And that will be mostly attributable to impaired loan provisions for credit losses. That said, we acknowledge the current operating environment is unique, as is the path forward, considering potential shifts in COVID-19 infection rates, restrictions enacted by public health authorities, and changes in government support and stimulus, which makes the expected level of impaired loans and expected losses difficult to predict. Our capital ratios have remained relatively stable over the last year, as noted on slide 11. Calculated using the standardized approach, our common equity tier one ratio was 8.7%, 10 basis points lower than last quarter and 40 basis points lower than a year ago. The change from last year was primarily as a result of our wealth management acquisition. The change in this quarter was primarily as a result of our very strong loan growth. Both our tier one and total capital ratios are significantly above prior year, due to two LRCN issuances, and we plan to fully redeem our Series 7 preferred shares on the next redemption date available of July 31st, 2021. Yesterday, our board declared a common share dividend of 29 cents per share, consistent with the dividends declared last year and last quarter. Looking forward on slide 12, while we expect the trajectory of the economic recovery will be dampened in the near term, Continued vaccine delivery has provided optimism for a strong economic recovery once restrictions are loosened. Under the assumption of a gradual recovery of the Canadian economy, we now expect to deliver full year 2021 percentage growth of adjusted EPS in the mid-teens, primarily as a result of stronger net interest income and lower provisions for credit losses than previously expected. Higher net interest income is expected to be driven by stronger loan growth. We now expect to deliver loan growth in the high single digits on a full year basis in 2021. Net interest margin is expected to fluctuate around 250 basis points over the second half of the year, and that's on the assumption of relatively stable funding cost. We do expect continued branch raise deposit growth, but at a lower level than the first half of fiscal 2021, as strong growth from expanded full service client relationships is expected to be partially offset by declines in deposits due to increased business and consumer spending through the expected economic recovery. With stronger net interest income growth, 
We expect our efficiency ratio on a full-year basis to finish between 48 and 49 percent. As we continue to make the planned investments in our strategic priorities for our clients, and also including the expenditures associated with our AIRB parallel run. As Chris mentioned earlier, we are seeing signals of a strong economic recovery that could provide additional opportunities to surpass our current loan growth expectations while remaining within our risk appetite. To provide the capital flexibility to take advantage of these potential opportunities, we plan to establish a $150 million at-the-market common equity distribution program. This program will provide a flexible and efficient tool to grow our regulatory capital base if needed in parallel with stronger levels of loan growth to drive incremental shareholder returns. With that, Michelle, let's open the lines for Q&A. At this time, if anybody has a question, please press star one on your telephone keypad. Again, that would be star one on your telephone keypad. Your first question comes from Paul Holden from CIBC. Your line is open. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thank you. Good morning. I think there's some uh, confusion out there regarding the ATM, which you just referred to. And so it's probably worth drilling down on that a bit just so people understand um, at what level it might be used. So I guess that's, that, that, that's my first question. And my estimates suggest that if you're growing loans at something over around 8%, that's kind of where you might need to tap into new uh, equity capital. Maybe you can verify if that's a reasonable assumption or not, or what the right assumption would be. Uh, yeah, good morning, Paul. Uh, yes, you are absolutely within the ballpark. Um, you know, the level of loan growth we're expecting, that high single digit, I mean, that's something we can deliver within our existing capital base. Um, so we feel really good about that. Uh, the purpose of the ATM is for those situations where we look and and we're starting to realize or we are um, very certain that our pipelines are strong and, and delivering loan growth above those levels um, looks likely. So that, that's what we would be looking to use the ATM for. Uh, it would be to match it to loan growth we're generating above our current expectations um, in order to maintain our capital ratios in or around current levels. Understand. And the other math I was running is just to maintain your capital levels. Figuring out, you know, let's just use the 150 million max, how much of additional loans that might um, correspond to. So given given your current loan RWA to CET1, I figure it's roughly an 8 to 1 ratio. In other words, 150 million of equity would get you roughly 1.2 billion of loans. Is that, again, in the right right ballpark? or? Yeah, your math, your math on that's solid. I mean, the actual RWA consumption, of course, will depend on the mix of loan growth. Um, but, but expecting the current mix continuing is, is a reasonable assumption. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And I guess the last point of clarification, I think I understand this one, but I think it's important to clarify. 
you're repaying 150 million of press, but still planning 150 million up to 150 million of AT, ATM. Those are not like that's not a mutually exclusive decision because your regulatory limits. There are regulatory limits, excuse me, on on press and LRCN. So um, you couldn't just simply keep the press and not do the ATM. Is that is that that correct? Well, it's it's a decision that are they're two independent decisions. So our call to redeem the Series Seven preferred shares is if you just look at our capital stack right now, uh, our CT one it's about a, well it's 170 basis points over regulatory minimums. Our Tier one's 270 basis points over. Our totals 240 basis points over. Uh, so the redemption of our Series Seven shares is is to reset the um, middle and end of that stack. Um, down to what we think are more appropriate levels. Uh, also in recognition that uh, the Series 7 uh, preps, they're quite expensive. The spread's 547 basis points over, um, so also quite expensive. Um, we view the LRCNs we raised, they were uh, replacement capital uh, for these prep shares, and we were able to do that uh, on a fairly accretive basis. So that was the, the thinking there, just a bit of a timing lag between when we issued the LRCNs and then uh, the redemption of the prefs. Got it. Okay. I'll uh, requeue. Thank you. And your next question will come from Doug Young from Desjardins. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. Just maybe a further clarification on the ATM. I mean, what would your, what would you be li willing to take your set one ratio down to before you felt you needed to tap it, or or are you at that level where if it actually went down ten basis points, you know, you you would feel compelled to kind of tap into that ATM? What's that trigger point? Yeah, Doug, we're in no imminent danger or imminent risk. I mean, we we like where we're sitting right now when we look at what's in front of us. Uh, we've been comfortable at this level through COVID. We've been hanging around this level. So uh, the intent would be to to maintain it in or around this range um, based on what we see. If we do see a little bit of volatility around that, that I mean, that's okay. Um, and, and that's why we like this program. I mean, it, it puts us in the driver's seat. It allows us to be flexible and mindful of, of the loan growth that we see uh, as it actually occurs or as it's very solidly in our pipeline. Um, the fact we're not looking for it on an emergency or rush basis also allows us to be very thoughtful about when we're issuing, um, how much we issue at once, when we do it, um, at what price. It just it puts a lot of tools in our toolkit and a lot of flexibility to be very opportunistic with it. And, and the fact we're in a, a good capital position right now um, adds to that optionality, flexibility, and, and ability to be opportunistic. Okay, so you like where you are now, but if you started to move lower from this level, that's when you would start to kind of, you would start to click into the ATM essentially. That, that's right, yeah. If we saw okay. loan growth there that we were realizing that was starting to, to drift us lower, then yes, this, this would be the offset as we would look to uh, issue the incremental shares to match up to that incremental loan growth. And then just further, I thought, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, like I, I went back in time in my my memory here, and I and I thought, you know, you didn't eat into your set one because clearly at a seven percent loan growth this quarter, you 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 reduced your set one ratio. Is that was the explanation in the MDNA? But I I thought that didn't occur until it was you know loan growth was in uh you know the low the the low double digits before. Has there structurally been, am I wrong on that? And this there's structurally been a change in in your in in the capital. Um, 
yeah, it, it change in, in in how that works. Yeah, I mean the the grind on CT1 from loan growth will be dependent on where we're growing. Uh, our growth this quarter, I mean, it was very commercial focused, and uh, I mean our commercial loan growth, it, it all virtually all of it attracts 100% risk weighted assets. Uh, if we had a more usual mix with um, retail residential as a component in there, it would have been a, a lower grind on capital, of course. Um, you would have noted uh, that our, our retail residential um, continues to go backwards this quarter. So um, it, it's a case of composition of loan growth, first of all. Uh, I think the, the other big factor is just the level of profitability as well. I mean, NIM is a little bit compressed, not much considering the low interest rate environment, but it is a bit lower. Um, than in what it was pre-COVID, as is our, our provision for credit losses a bit higher as well. Um, we're also making strategic investments um, in, in intangible assets, which are a grind to CT1 as well. So it's the mix of all those things that I, I do agree with you, though. Um, we're now at a point where uh, if we're generating purely commercial loan growth, um, we're not in that double digit or just above double digit before we consume capital, it, it is a, a little bit of a lower level. Okay. And then just on the AIRB conversion delay, um, maybe you can just flesh out a little bit more of why. And then Chris, I think in your prepared remarks, you mentioned it's going to have a more favorable long-term outcome. Can you unpack that? Like what, what would be that more favorable long-term outcome? Well, we're in a parallel run, so we're able to really evaluate how the models we've developed work, how it sort of matches up to our, our business. And what we're seeing is we've got some real enhancements that will help us both in our business processes, the um, feedback it gives us on credit uh, migration, credit quality. So we see some real opportunities to improve the structure of our program. And with that improvement, uh, we need a bit of development, of course, then we have to test them and run them to make sure that they are delivering the outcomes we anticipate. So it's really just extending, but I mean, this is a, an event that is an operating model for the bank for the future that we just see really um, important to invest the time at the outset so that we have it really in, a very, in very good shape as we take it forward for that uh, final submission to, to OSPI. So we're happy with the progress. There is work to be done, and uh, we're just looking at extending what we think the uh, submission date will be on this. And so would this free up more capital than it would have before? Is that... Well, that, that would be our... That, that's obviously our goal, is uh, as we think about what capital floors might come into play at, uh, at the outset. I mean, our, our focus is... I mean, ultimately, to get at the same level as the DCEPs. <laughs> I mean, our, our focus is we have a very high-quality portfolio that performs very well. We like our market uh, segment that we have really specialized in, and this is uh, Airbnb is a fantastic tool to really support our, our growth. And uh, we are going to make sure that the process under which it operates is as efficient as possible and provides us with the best capital management opportunities it can. And then just lastly, was this driven by yourselves or was this something that was mandated by OSPI? So this is our parallel run. Um, and, you know, we are we have a, a, a strong team overlooking it. And, of course, as you know, Carolyn Graham is now the leader of that, that team. And we just have lots of good insight and uh, we're just seeing, you know, good opportunities for us. 
So this wasn't something that OSPE said they wanted you to do, the delay? No, it's not specifically okay. anything that they've said to do, no. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And your next question will come from Manny Grauman from Scotiabank. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, question on rate sensitivity, just trying to think through sort of uh, the upside here. Um, in your published sensitivity looks relatively low compared to, well, just what it, one would assume based on the fact that you're so heavily skewed towards NII. And then um, in the MDNA, talk about, uh, you know, based on the current interest rate gap position, a one percentage point increase uh, in rates would have an insignificant impact on net interest income. I'm just wondering how to understand that, again, given given your uh, skew towards NII and, and just is there upside to rising rates that's not being captured in your published sensitivity and how do you think about that? Yeah, great question, Manny, very, very topical. Um, definitely has been a structural change in our liability profile. I mean, this is the strongest liability profile that, that I can see looking backwards in terms of diversity, in terms of levers at our disposal. But it, but it is a structural change. Um, what hasn't changed is that about 45% of our loans are at floating rates. Um, what has changed is that about half of our deposits float. Um, that used to be about 35% uh, or so. So, I mean, that's a structural change, and that's resulted from us winning more, more full-service clients and then obviously a factor of people just naturally favoring liquidity rather than term given the interest rate environment. Um, our, our NIM will still benefit from prime increases. I mean, that's a component of floating rates. Not all of our floating products float with prime. Um, you know, a larger proportion of our floating rate loads are linked to prime, about 80% of them or so, um, compared to deposits. You know, less than half of those floating rate deposits are, are linked to prime, but even that's much closer than it used to be. So I would say today we are less rate sensitive, and I'd, I'd say we are spread sensitive at this point. And things that will, will cause our NIM to move um, would be competition for funding, um, how we're able to, to deliver yields on our lending and, and any com competitive factors there, um, how we're able to match uh, our new funding sources to those higher levels of loan growth. Um, you know, over time, people will eventually start trading back liquidity for term funding. Um, you know, these are factors that, that will influence our NIM, certainly, and, and how it plays out. Uh, ultimately, and, and how much NIM we put to the bottom line in a rising interest rate environment, uh, you know, in my view, will depend on our ability to continue to win new full-service client relationships. I mean, that's, that's where we can really win by putting a lot of lower-cost funding in uh, to offset some of these shifting dynamics in, in our fixed-rate products. Overall, though, I mean, we're, we're looking at a win uh, to NIM as a result of rising interest rates, you know, prime still accretive to NIM. Um, we're thinking with the liability structure we have right now, uh, we do not need the 150 basis points of Bank of Canada reductions returned to us back in the form of increases to get our NIM um, back to where it was pre-COVID. Uh, it is a proportion of that. We don't need 100% of it. And so that does speak to a lot of upside. We, we think we can continue to drive as a result of our continued focus on, on winning full-service clients. I mean, that's the key for us. You will not see that um, fall out of our interest rate sensitivity disclosure. I mean, that's, 
that's a static balance sheet view of the world, and, and our strategic direction uh, will have us be anything but static in terms of higher levels of loan growth and uh, continued focus on lower-cost branch raised deposits. Uh, thanks, Matt. That, that was pretty comprehensive. And then if I can just um, uh, pose another question, just in terms of gross impaired loans, uh, the increases um, uh, in two specific uh, categories, the general commercial loans and then also uh, uh, on the uh, on the real estate side, I'm just wondering if you could give us a little bit more detail into what's going on there. Um, is, it, is the increase very concentrated? Is there anything that you can... Uh, um, sort of uh, dig out of that in terms of themes that that you see developing in terms of the build and gross impaired loans. Well, I don't think we we see you know in particular see themes. We anticipated as we would come through this pandemic as we that we would see an increase, and we've been. I, I think what we where we sit in the end of uh, Q2 is pretty much what we said we expected in Q1, and our outlook is. We're in and around where we anticipated. We said about 30 basis points on PCL. Um, in terms of in the particular portfolios, we've seen, um, you know, a little bit of movement both in the general commercial and in the uh, in commercial mortgages. Um, and we see a couple of exposures there where we've been very conservative in our allowances. Um, our goal is just to be to run it as t very very tightly. We've got a very strong team that oversees our. Uh, are watching impaired loans, um, and we just take very specific action. We've always been very uh, proactive in management of, uh, of unsatisfactory loans, and that's not changing. Thanks. Thanks, Vinny. Your next question will come from Gabriel Deshane from National Bank. Your line is open. Uh, good morning, and uh, my first uh, just a quick one on the ATM and just kind of how to conceptually uh, view this thing. Is it is it sort of a bridge to AIRB transition? Uh, because you know the the point of AIRB transition is that you know you, you could accelerate your growth, and it wouldn't be as RWA intensive under that model. But you're still you know waiting for that conversion. Is that is that more or less it? Well, yeah, Gabe, we, we are a standardized bank until we are not and, and continue to manage our bank in that fashion. Uh, I mean, this the ATM is about near-term growth opportunities that we're seeing build, and and this is really the program to be able to take advantage of those. I mean, it's it's really sending a strong signal, we think, to our teams internally as, as well as the market that, you know, despite uh, AIRB, I mean, that's a separate conversation. This is a case where we're not going to sit on the sidelines. If we see opportunities to participate in loans that are on strategy within our risk appetite, you know, good full-service borrowers we've been chasing for a while and uh, now finally have the opportunity to land them, uh, I mean, this is a case of giving the, the green light to them. Um, your, your point on AIRB, I mean, that is the whole reason we're doing it, or one of the primary reasons. It is a, a tool that will allow us to accommodate higher levels of loan growth um, without consuming uh, capital. So that that is still true. Um, it's not a tool we have today, and it would be the most accretive path, but the path we're carving as a standardized bank is still accretive, still exciting, still delivers to the bottom line, still drives ROE. So um, it, it's a big win for us and our teams if, uh, if we can deliver that loan growth. Okay. And... Um the ARB just uh, you talked about the parallel run and, and costs associated with that. 
Have you ever quantified those? And if so, could you? If not, could you? And and <laughs> and, and also, uh, do those drop off? Let's say you convert and you get approval in 2023 or something like that. Do those those costs just fall off? Yeah, Gabe, uh, we have quantified what I would call our normal run rate of costs related to uh, the running AIRB. Uh, and that's really depreciating what was on our balance sheet that we had previously capitalized in developing the tools. Uh, it also accounts for the ongoing team that, that runs, develops, tweaks. I mean, th those are costs that we expect to continue at, at around the current run rate. It's about $2 million a quarter. Uh, what, what we don't know yet with certainty, but I'm hopeful of, is that once we get ARB um, and we get used to running the tools, the models are relatively stable. Those, I mean, the depreciation won't run down, but the team supporting the models might. Uh, so there may be opportunities to bring those costs down over time. I think temporarily, um, that $2 million a quarter run rate, uh, I do think it picks up higher as a result of some of the enhancement work we need to do over the near term here. So uh, we could see a bit of a tick up, but we'll continue to report those costs separately as we have been the past couple quarters. It's uh, clear, clear that beyond yourself, um, others in the market are interested and, and we're uh, absolutely open to being transparent in terms of what we're spending. Okay, that's great. And then uh, my last one uh, on the, uh, you know, the deposit story, which has been great for you know, well over a year now. Uh, it's really been a demand and notice uh, growth story, um, displacing higher cost funding, and you know we're seeing 30% plus growth in those uh, those deposits. Now, you know, walk me through you know the the the, the future here. If we have a scenario where you know, maybe we've hit a peak and we start to see those, those deposits, that deposit growth decelerate, you know, that makes, makes sense, and, uh, because it, you've, you've hit a certain, you know, apex, maybe, and you have uh, borrowers or clients drawing down their liquidity to invest, and you also have, as you're alluding to, uh, accelerating loan growth. Uh, what is what is your margin doing that that type of scenario? Because it seems like that's a feasible one at this at this point, and it could go either direction. Yeah, I, I think it's a reasonable expectation that that the branch raised deposits we've accumulated will will run off. I mean, it's it's tough to say how much and when and the timing, but I think it's a fair assumption, and it's an assumption that we've embedded uh, within our outlook and guidance. Um, we do believe that's that's the most likely path. Um, you know, with the strong loan growth, uh, we'll clearly have some decisions to make on funding. Um, you know, I think the natural path of what happens to our branch raise growth uh, is, is we'll likely see the, the cheapest sources of funding run off first. I think that stands to reason. Um, what we replace it with, though, uh, we'll, have, we'll have some levers to pull. And we even have some levers to pull to think about driving incremental um, branch raise growth. You know, I'd say that over the last um, couple of quarters for sure, we've really taken our foot off the gas from a pricing perspective. I mean, we've actually taken opportunities to continue to reduce pricing on certain products because of strength of funding coming in and, and new wins and, and other sources. I mean, that's a lever we could pull in terms of making some investments to, to potentially drive a, a higher level of branch raise deposits to offset more of the runoff. Um, we think without enacting those levers, we still end up, uh, as you see in our outlook, we still end up at a positive spot in terms of branch raise deposit growth. 
Um, but this could be a tool we could use to, to deliver an even higher level of growth if the economics make sense. You know, we've also had some strong outings in the capital markets. Um, we've opened some new securitization channels as well and um, have the ability to drive funding through there. So, Gabe, I guess the point is, um, you know, through a lot of the structural work we've done to expand and, and deepen our funding sources, we've left ourselves with a whole lot of options a whole lot of tools in the toolkit, a whole lot of levers to pull, that if we do start seeing the runoff that we're expecting, we'll have plenty of ways that we can draw and defund it, um, and we'll pick the path that we think is the most uh, accretive to NIM, most accretive to the bottom line. It's, uh, it's good to have options, and um, we'll manage this very dynamically to ensure we're choosing the best one, depending on the pace and volume of, of the runoff we see. Just to put a fine point on that, the, the, the scenario I described, is that consistent with your outlook for, you know, margins staying flat at this two and a half point level? That's right. You know, we think our, our growth will be positive. Um, we don't think it'll be as high as the growth we put up this quarter, so you're, you're kind of somewhere within that range. Um, and our expectation is that absent any runoff, we would be delivering um, a pretty consistent growth rate in branch raised deposits as we put up in Q2. I mean, Q2 reflected continued growth of uh, new full service clients. We really didn't see a lot of runoff. Um, there were products where we made some pricing decisions and we didn't drive growth in those products, but we also didn't see any runoff either. So I think that 2.5% um, quarterly sequential growth rate uh, is one that we could generate without being aggressive on pricing and just through the new client wins. Um, and then getting to somewhere between, you know, flat and that 2.5% level, um, you know, we're probably somewhere in the midpoint um, based on the expected level of runoff that, that we see, although that's a, a highly uncertain prediction, of course. Thank you, and have a great weekend. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. And your next question will come from Darko Mikulik from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Um, just a couple of questions uh, on the ATM and then a few on the margin. First on the ATM, I've never seen one before, so can you just give me an idea of how mechanically it works? Do I, If I'm a shareholder of CWB, do I just wake up one morning with another um, share of CWB or whatever, or, or do you have to alert the market, or how does that work? Yeah, it's, uh, think of it as the inverse of, of an NCIB. I mean, this is us just issuing new shares into the market um, from, our, from our treasury shares. Um, we're in complete control in terms of how much we issue, when we issue, if we issue at all. That's a call we can make day to day, week to week. Uh, we can be very responsive, dynamic, opportunistic based on how the trading volume uh, is occurring in that day, but not one where you would automatically as a shareholder um, get incremental shares landing, landing in your book. It's one where if you're looking to put in an order to buy CWB, we would look to fill it, if we're in the market to want to fill it, uh, with incremental shares issued from a, an ATM product. Okay, understood. And when you say $150 million, is that per year or is that per shot? That would be the full uh, extent of the entire program. Um, the way we would use it, I mean, this is not a case where we want to go out and, and raise $150 million and, and put the capital in our genes today. Um, this is something over the duration of a program 
that we'll use if and when needed, as we need it, um, be very thoughtful about using it. Um, but that is the global limit of the program. In terms of how much you potentially move each day, I mean, that is completely within um, your discretion as, as the issuer under that program. Um, there are guardrails around how much you do, and really it's simple guidance, and I think this is guidance that should give, give comfort to shareholders. I mean, one of the conditions of using this program is you, you literally can't use it to significantly impact your share price. So by nature and by design, you use it in such a way that it's, it's um, very obscured and you wouldn't necessarily even see us using it and you shouldn't see any impact on the share price um, because of our ability to be really thoughtful and um, you know, really, really not have to put the foot down on the gas from a timing perspective. I mean, we have enough of a capital buffer that we can, uh, we can be really strategic about when and how we use this. Okay, that's a good explanation. I appreciate that. And so, so the hypothetical of some bank came to you and said, hey, we've got a portfolio of, uh, of $2 billion of commercial loans. You wouldn't just suddenly, boom, uh, hit the button, issue that much equity and then and buy the portfolio, right? That's, that's not what this is aimed at. No, no, this, this is an appropriate tool, we think, for situations where you're going to see variable ongoing capital consumption of relatively minor proportions. Um, if you were looking to raise equity in a hurry for an acquisition or for any other use that you needed the, uh, the equity in your genes in a hurry, you'd be looking at a different program to raise that equity. The ATM would not be appropriate in that circumstance. Okay, great. So that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty I understand it. The, the one issue or difficulty I have understanding is, you know, to my recollection, I've never seen a Canadian bank use this kind of program before, not even you. Um, and so it, it begs the question, are you running way too lean on capital? Every other Canadian bank right now has a ton of excess capital lying around. Um, and the other question is, if we do use the program enough that you hit the $150 million, at current spreads, is it, is it actually accretive or dilutive? I'm doing some math, but I'm just wondering if you guys have done some math to help me out um, before I go spouting off my, my math. <laughs> Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Darko. So on the first question, you're correct. Um, to, my, to my knowledge, based on my research, I have not seen another Canadian bank do this before, neither have we. A very prevalent tool in the U.S. I think the use of an ATM product in Canada uh, historically has not been prevalent. It's certainly increased over the last year, if you go back and look. And um, it, maybe a after the call, I'll flip you a note with, um, with some examples. I mean, it's really ramped up in the last year, and that's because uh, Canadian securities administrators have um, adjusted the rules on the setup and maintenance of an ATM program uh, to align it with U.S. regulations. Um, in the U.S., these are pretty common, actually. Um, you see them in anywhere from small cap to large cap issuers, U.S. banks, uh, including very large U.S. mega banks have used this product. So it's, it's not necessarily a unique product to banking or banks. It's a unique product to Canadian banking. But I, I think that, you know, that, that probably has something to do with uh, how tight the rules used to be. Um, you know, we'll see if it picks up. But, you know, to your point, it's a question of capital level. I think what's different for us, I mean, we've been in or around this capital level through COVID. We've been very comfortable there. I think the new new change for us that we're looking at here is uh, loan growth that appears to be a reasonable enough probability. 
that we like having this in our back pocket to use if we see that higher level of loan growth uh, materializing. It's one of those unique situations just in what might be out there from a loan growth uh, perspective that we thought warranted a uh, admittedly unique solution to the problem. Okay, and on dilution, ROE, yes, uh, um, uh, accretive. I mean, it's if if hmm. we're using this ATM product to issue shares and that's to fund uh, new loan growth, um, even at current spreads, that would be accretive. I mean, it's obviously not as accretive that if we just did the loan growth um, without issuing the shares, but um, as you run through the math, you'll see it's you know it's it's a proportion of that accretion, but it's still accretive. It still puts um, dollars down to EPS, um, still accretive to ROE, even at current spreads. Okay. Well, have, let's touch base after the call. I mean, I just want to run yeah. my math by you. Um, and Absolutely. the second question is on, on, on margins. You mentioned that, you know, you don't quite need the Bank of Canada to give back, you know, what <laughs> Or to raise rates, can you can you walk through what is special now um, that your NIM is more sensitive to rising rates than in the past? Uh, I'd say our NIM is is less sensitive um, to rising rates, and I think you can see evidence of that through what happened on the way down as interest rates declined. I mean, the usual math we had given in the past is uh, a 25 basis point change in, in Bank of Canada rates might drive three to five basis points change in NIM. Uh, if you applied that math to the last year, you'd expect our NIM to be much lower than it has been. Um, really, the shift is, is us being a bit more in the driver's seat from a pricing perspective, having a greater proportion uh, of our deposits in notice and demand, a greater proportion of our deposits in what we would call administered rates. Um, these are deposit products where we are in control of the rate. We can make the decision in terms of how much of that uh, market rate increase uh, we pass on to our depositors. We can be thoughtful about that. We can make that call based on competition and, and demand for deposits at the time. So the big difference is we have a lot more tools in the toolkit um, to be able to manage um, and, and reduce the volatility in our NIM. Um, but I suppose the price you pay for that is, is it, you know, it makes you less uh, sensitive on the way down. It, it likely makes us less sensitive on the way up. Um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the NIM expansion, though, I mean, it won't directly be driven by prime interest rate increases. It'll be driven based on the spread of new lending compared to the incremental uh, cost of deposit we need to fund that uh, loan growth. So it's a bit of a, a wait and see, but it's a different situation than, you know, us just sitting back and, and completely winning or losing on NIM as a result of Prime. I think we just have more maturity and more flexibility in, in our funding mix today than we've had in the past. And I would just add that that is entirely being our strategic direction, is to give ourselves much more of our clients full business. And we have generated many, many more new full service clients that is giving us that boost in demand and notice and the ability to have a much stronger liability profile than we did before. Mm, okay. Well, I appreciate that. That's uh, that's great. Thanks very much for uh, for the color. Thanks, Darko. Your next question comes from Sihan Tonke from Chief Stiefel. Your line is open. 
Hi, everyone. Uh, good morning. Just wanted to get a little bit more color on the um, digital product rollout, your recent um, partnership with, with Brim and the virtual COO um, product rollout with, with Temino. Um, you know, are you looking at getting more deeper into the, the payment space at all? Are you looking at enhancing that digital product shelf with any other potential um, products and services in the future? Um, how do you think about, uh, if you can give us some more color on, on um, where that uh, direction is going for the product shelf then? Yes. Um, well, obviously the digital delivery is key for as we think about growth, uh, geographic uh, diversification can be tremendously enhanced with a bigger digital footprint. Um, the virtual CEO is a, a set of tools that allows us to think about our client too and expand that client profile. Uh, really to, to, you know, if we think about our current book, it is really mid-market commercial. We see more small business able to be uh, accessed with the virtual COO and with that digital footprint. So there's the aspects of the market we're able to drive is just tremendously enhanced by our improvement in our in our digital capabilities on the payment side we are having a switch in how we're able to facilitate etfs with uh, a, with a with our investment in digital um, today we've got some multiple sign-on situations that will become single um, it just all of the ways that we think about attracting more full service clients are enhanced with our uh, investments in digital and our big release starts in uh, the second half of this year with the virtual COO, and as we adopt and bring into play the uh, different commercial banking digital capabilities, again, we see lots of wins for our clients and, uh, and again, to attract more full-service uh, commercial clients. Thanks for that, Chris, and maybe uh, just a follow-up to that. I know it's still, you know, undergoing the rollout, as you said, but um, can you give us a sense of, you know, with the pickup you're seeing in, in demand deposits in particular, can you give us a sense of how much of your deposit growth is coming from digital channels? So at, at this point, uh, Jan, it's, um, I, I wouldn't say it's contributing a great deal. I mean, we've, in terms of the tools we've launched so far, it's, it's really been onboarding. I mean, that's been helpful. Um, and, and contributed, but I wouldn't call it uh, the primary reason. Um, I think it's all part of the package when we go and win a full-service client. It's an element of why a client will, will do business with us. They'll see what we've done. They'll see what we're doing. They'll make a call based on that and, and other factors. So it contributes, but it's hard to isolate. Uh, in terms of the, the virtual COO, I mean, we're launching a pretty limited uh, rollout of it just to, to release it to a select group of clients, really have them use it, uh, contribute key insights, give us insights as to how we can best leverage and, and market and use this tool. Um, so in terms of near-term deposit contribution from that product this year, for instance, uh, I would not expect it to, to drive a different uh, trajectory in branch raise deposit growth. Certainly gets us excited about the future, but uh, that would be a beyond this year um, future. Appreciate uh, the color there. And maybe just on the overall um, inorganic growth opportunities, you know, sounds like with your, with your increase in, in loan growth guidance, um, you've got a lot of organic opportunities you can target. How do you think about, um, you know, other avenues of growth, be it, you know, um, additions to your wealth management platform, be it in other uh, potential opportunities 
how do you balance those uh, decisions for organic versus inorganic growth opportunities uh, from here? Well, right now, we're, we're very consumed with uh, our integrating our current wealth acquisition into the bank and making sure that we've got uh, a very strong team delivering there. We've had great performance. We're just really happy with the progress of our wealth management teams as they've come together and, and integrating very effectively. Um, as we think about other sort of inorganic, we, we still like wealth as an opportunity for, for growth. Um, but, you know, we've, we're really focused on our digital, we're focused on our wealth integration, we're focused on our ARB projects. I mean, clearly, if there's a tremendous opportunity that that uh, we identify, we would be obviously uh, open to that. But today, we've got lots on the go. We're very happy with their progress and, and certainly the, you know, the, the delivery of of what we anticipate is a strong economic recovery um, and seeing that in loan growth that has already come through in Q2. So we, we just think we have lots of opportunities on our plate today and we're going to be very focused on delivering on them. Thanks uh, very much for the caller. I'll, I'll pass it on. Thanks. Thank you. This brings us to the end of our Q&A session. I will turn the call back over to Chris Fowler for closing remarks. Thank you, Michelle. Our focus on our clients by investing in our capabilities and product offering is yielding strong results now and creating growth opportunities for CWB. Each day, our teams are winning more full-service clients, and as the economy recovers, we're well-positioned to accelerate our growth and capture increased market share. I'm very pleased with the strong performance in the first half of the year and excited for the opportunities that exist in the back half of 2021 and beyond. Continued vaccine delivery has provided optimism for a strong economic recovery once restrictions are relaxed, and it's possible that economic conditions could improve more rapidly or robustly than we expect. We plan to assess these opportunities prudently and support them with our ATM program to deliver solid shareholder returns. In closing, I want to say thank you to our teams. I continue to be impressed with your efforts to advance our strategic objectives, transform our capabilities, and deliver strong financial results. Together, we're setting the stage for CWB to deliver profitable, long-term growth and attractive, sustainable shareholder returns. To our investors, I appreciate your confidence in us, and we're excited for our opportunities before us. We look forward to reporting third quarter financial results on August 27th. With that, we wish you all a good day. And thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. This will conclude today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.